You are listening to the New Street X podcast, where we interview people who understand the intersection of physical and digital collectibles. We're entering an exciting world in the collectible space that involves things like sneakers, NFTs, trading cards, fashion, sports, pop culture, and much, much more. And these things are coming together. So we're here to talk to people that understand that, people that are really building the future of collectibles around the world. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Street X podcast. I'm excited to have here today a very special guest, Brandon Steiner. A well-known legend in the sports memorabilia industry and sports in general, he founded the Steiner Agency, has worked with some of the world's biggest athletes and teams like the New York Yankees. Now he's moving on to Collectible Exchange, which is a brand new company from him, also acquired Starstock, and excited to have him here today to talk about a bit of his background and what he's doing now in Collectible. So Brandon, thanks so much for being here. No, it's good to be with you, Tony. Thanks for having me. And it is a crazy world right now, what's going on. So if you're a collector... Or an entrepreneur, you probably want to stay right on this podcast with us because there's going to be some good nuggets I hope that we can share and and and, and kind of uncover. Totally. I, I'm excited to talk about how, you know, given all your experience, what you've seen, how you think things are changing for better or for worse now. But in case someone doesn't know you, can we talk a bit about your background, what you did with Steiner Agency? You know, maybe just some highlights about where your career kind of started, you know, some of the big things you've done for someone that might not know you. Can we just kind of touch on what were some of the most important moments in your career until we get to collectible exchange? That's a lot of questions in one question, but I'm, I'm just giving you a hard time. But I mean, I listen, I think everybody's life and careers start when they were a kid. It's where you were born, where you were raised, and who raised you. You know, so you know, I was raised in Brooklyn. I had a really, really liberal, aggressive mom who back in the 60s and 70s, you know, women were nurses and secretaries and housewives. My mother was like a business owner, entrepreneur, you know, kicking ass, you know, doing a lot of stuff that women just didn't do, period. Uh, was a crazy gambler, was just an incredible people person. You know, she ran card games. She took her piece of the game. I mean, you know, women just didn't do this. I mean, average person didn't do this. So that's why you understand the environment I was in. You know, I grew up in a in a very small apartment over a Glock kosher butcher. You know, Glock koshers, that's where they kill the chickens in the butcher shop. So, you know, my alarm clock in the morning was Brack! You know, chickens' heads getting cut off and shit like that. So, I mean, it wasn't a pleasant childhood, you know, very, very poor growing up. We didn't have a lot, single parent home, that whole thing. But, you know, to me, like I, I bring this up because I and I think what's really important is that I got really accountable early on. I don't know. I mean, 10 year olds, I've had a few kids. So 10 years old, I'm lucky to get them down for breakfast and dress in the morning. Like I'm 10 years old. I'm out and about at 630 looking to make some money and and, and found it and, and did hustle every which way. So I, I needed a full hour just to go over my first three years in business, which is from the age of 10 to 13. That's how many different businesses and hustles I had. So just so you understand kind of like the mindset that where my head's been triggered. But, you know, I, I think that the one the most important thing I learned and being on the streets of Brooklyn is one, you know, you don't really have to like people, but you have to understand them and you have to learn how to get along with them. And and that, that's critical. And any business you're going to be in, you got to get out of the like and dislike business and you got to get in the understand people business. And, and, and most importantly, you got to also be able to serve and solve. You know, you got to have a value proposition. Um, I say this time and time again, you know, value is something we just don't talk enough about. 
and stores and businesses today and value is like what you could do for someone they can't do for themselves. And I think that the value proposition always has to have a core of serving and solving. You know, if you really want to fill yourself, you got to forget yourself and you have to be committed to serving people and solving a problem. What's crazy is even at the age of 12 and 13, I was like doing that. And I, I think, you know, learning that early on in your business career is so important because ultimately nobody really does incredibly well unless you're really out trying to solve problems and serve people. And I don't care what position you have, CEO, VP, waiting tables, whatever it is, you know, you, you really have to be somebody who wants to help others. And it's kind of part of the reason why we're here anyway, is to help others. So that's a big part of my childhood. It's a big part of how I built Steiner with that exact formula. People saying, how'd you do this? How'd you meet this player? I'm like, you know, some, I found really, really talented people, which, you know, it's a dream to be in a room with some of these people, let alone work with them. And then I figured out how to serve them. I'm not, it wasn't like, oh, well, I'm going to go meet Derek Cheetah. I can make a ton of money. No, I try to find something I can maybe help Derek with, which at that time was his foundation. And mo most people need help in some sort, right, Tony? I mean, so, you know, that that's the trigger for me in building Steiner Sports which I started that company with 4,000 bucks. I don't recommend you do that at home. Like that was way, way under, way under. I kind of was undercapitalized, but you know, I was one of those guys that was fearless and I thought I could do it. And I did do it, but it was stupid. I, I don't want to, I, I, I'm proud that I started with 4,000 and turned into this big company, but it was stupid. It was, it was, it was kind of really cool and smart, but it was stupid. I just want to emphasize that. And, and financing is such a big part of business. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs misunderstand it. You can have a good idea, and a big part of it is executing it. A friend of mine always says, you know, execution beats strategy for breakfast. And I, I agree with that. But also, financing and borrowing money is, is really just additional responsibility that one has to take very seriously. I see people celebrating that they had this big money raise. I'm like, celebrating? I'd be in my office trying to figure out how I'm going to get that money to work so I can pay these people back, you know, which is something sometimes it gets a little lost in today's world. But having somebody invest in you is, is, a, is a blessing. I mean, it's amazing that somebody believes in what you believe in and you've done a good job dreaming it and selling it, but you got to execute it. Otherwise, your entrepreneur career is going to be very short. So I think, you know, at Steiner, you know, being lucky enough that we got bought by a really big company. And then building out a really big company with them, with their help, was a blessing and, and really lucky in some regards, too, because the company had nothing to do with sports at the time. And they took a, a chance on a kid like me, and I, I put it to use. So, you know, Steiner was a great company. I love building it. For people listening, I'm not at Steiner anymore. So it was a great company. I had 35 years, and, and someone else kind of came in and, and kind of took it over. But I, I, at the time, I was a little bit upset about it. And now I'm extremely ecstatic about it because... Even at the age of 60, you know, to go build something new and start again is really the joy of starting a new process, starting something from new, the unknown. You know, I, I really, I'm really trying to enjoy the unknown, the frustration. I was just yelling at an employee who didn't want to work on Saturday. Like, that's the shit I used to do with Steiner. Like, that's, that's, even, I mean, that's after we'd work, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. That's the whole thing. It's like you know, when you get together with a bunch of people that have a common goal and you go build something and you see it rising in front of you. Like that's, it's definitely better than the money. I'm not saying it's better than sex, but it's, it's right up there. You know what I mean? Like that's what I try to urge people to do is like really enjoy this building and this process part because it does challenge you. 
And the most, second most important thing I mentioned before is helping people. The, the other most important thing is growing. You know, you got to be a rose. You know, your rate of self-effectiveness and your rate of growth, Tony, is everything. And like what I feel like now with this new company, Collectible Exchange, and then in parts now the New Steiner Agency, these two companies are all about growth and figuring it out. And, you know, I started with the same mindset as I did when I built Steiner back in 1988, which is especially the tech part. I'm not a techie, you know, like learning the tech part, learning how to build an exchange, you know, being able to partner up with different people. It's like the same stuff I was trying to do back in the early 90s. I used to call 100 people a day, minimum. I had two phones, three Rolodexes, and for five or six hours, I would call as many people as I could, and I hoped that they weren't there. So they would call me back, and the phones would start ringing, and I would look and feel like it was busy in the office. Meanwhile, like I had no idea what I was even doing, but I was, I was doing, because I think you have to take action over anxiety. Like I'd sit there and start kind of freaking out because I don't know what, where I'm going to get the business from. So I just started calling people, coming up with ideas, and then people call me back, and they tell me, all right, Brent, I got a problem. Can you help me? Yeah, I can help you. You, know, you, need, you, need, you need your floor swept? You need an athlete? What do you need? And I feel like I'm in the same mindset now. I go, to, I go to a place, I go, you need help building your business? Like, I think I get you an athlete. I have a little bit of an advantage. I've got a few athletes in my Rolodex after 35 years. So, you know, it's been, but I, I love when I run into businesses that are struggling and I tell them I can fix it and I help them fix it, just like I'm trying to build and fix this business. I was a little bit of a rant there. Sorry about that, but I want to give you, get you kind of there where I'm at. No, I, I, I love it because I'm, I feel like you have such unique perspective because, you know, if, if you and I walked into, let's say, like the national this year, and we see all the new startups and companies, all the young kids, all the billion dollar companies now, all the serious level of investment where, you know, if we were going to the national 10, 20 years ago, it would seem I know, probably like a lot more casual, amateurish. I remember when, when you and I first spoke, you were saying, hey, when I joined this, it was a hobby. Now it's a real business. Could you maybe like, let's say, say it's 1988 again. What what was the business side of like sports memorabilia then? You know you know what I mean? And like collectibles and cards. Obviously, you know, people people paid money for them, I'm sure, but like compared to now, like wh what was it like then? Just just before we get into like Mickey Mantle's autograph for six bucks, Joe DiMaggio for five, and you know, there was like some really diehard people that would go and and it, it wasn't a business. You know, like right now I gotta remind people that this business is a hobby. So like I reversed my role, like I used to tell people, like, you know, this, this hobby is a business. Like, you know, this sports thing is a business. And I tell people, like, you know, the Yankees, that's a business. No. I, yeah, George Steinbrenner is running a business. I mean, it's, he's, he's in it to win it, make money, not just only win championships. He's in it to make money, too. But now I have to remind people, you know, by the way, this business stuff is, well, you know, it's a sports hobby, too, you know. So I think sometimes things go now the other side of the spectrum where people are taking – the sports stuff too seriously on the business end and not letting the sports be the sports. Like in the collectible thing, not letting the hobby be a little bit of a hobby. You know, I have to remind players like, hey, these people are lining up to get your autograph. Like, wow, they're putting that stuff up on their walls. Wow. It's not a typical line item in, in your business portfolio. You get to go and meet people that are now going to be even more fandom-like with you. But if you want to stick around long enough, I always tell the guys, you got to go to the dentist. We all do. Oh, I got to sit there, sign autographs, kiss babies. I'm like, we all got to go to the dentist. If you want to keep being who you are and have the statue, 
you know, you got to remember who made you into that to begin with. That's the fans. So I think the hobby gives these players an opportunity to do that. And I try to remind as many players as I can that it's important to do it, whether you like it or not. Because I'm sure you like the celebrity status when you get that reservation or you don't have to pay for dinner or all the other cool stuff that you get, you know, being who you are. So, you know, the hobby plays a, it plays a very important role, especially with young ones. We mentioned the national. We have so many young kids now in the business, which is so exciting. But, you know, that's what keeps building the sport up is, you know, getting the young ones involved. And a lot of it is the startup. Now, 10 years ago was, you know, the video games. You know, my kid didn't know who Gretzky, Mario, but he knew because he had it on his Nintendo. But now the kids know him because they're back to where I was when I was a kid. They know the trading cards. You know, knowing who these guys are and getting a feeling for them and a connection to them is what creates bigger and bigger fandom. I wish that the teams, leagues, and players would understand that anytime you can create that connection with the players, uh, it's huge. Now, on the marketing and corporate side, it can have a profound effect on the branding. It can have a corporate, you know, effect on corporations because people connect with that athlete and then they associate the business with the athlete. And that triangle effect makes you now think more about that company than you did before. Or maybe even you didn't even know about that company because they're partnered up with your favorite player. Now you do. Hence, Air Jordans. You think I would give a hoot about wearing a pair of Nike basketball sneakers? No, but I get on the court and I want to. I feel like Michael Jordan, and I'm going to buy those sneakers to the day I die. And so that's kind of how it all comes together. You, just one last thing, Tony. Like the National was a really big eye opener to see the young entrepreneurs there, kids buttoned up going after it. I felt normal. It was like one of the first times in a long time I felt like a normal person seeing these kids like kicking ass. I mean, showing up, taking, I mean, just taking it on. And I'm not talking about a few of them. I'm talking about that national increase by 25% over that national. I think it was like 275,000 square feet. It went up to 400,000 square feet. These kids were everywhere and they weren't just, they weren't screwing around. They were rocking and rolling. And I think that is a sign that the business slash hobby is healthy. Big deal. I, th I think so, too. I mean, you know, you've seen so much. If I think let's take a teams, leagues and players in 1990 versus 2023. How do they how, let, let's just take the executives. I'm sure you were working with executives back then and you are now. How do they view on average the business hobby then versus now? And when you say looking forward. Where where is like the optimism? Where's the growth? Where's where's the trending? Well, first of all, when you go back to 1990, you you their their view on the business was zero, so it's not not hard for me to figure that out. It wasn't like slow. It was no, no no interest. Second of all, you got to remember most of these teams had very small front offices. When I call a team up, you know you're talking about their front office could consist on most teams of under ten people, under ten, and most of those ten. We're not the smartest tax in the box. I mean, it just wasn't like now you got Harvard grads, you got MBAs. I mean, it's unbelievable. So the view the view now is, and then you got private equity money involved with a lot of these teams in league now. So now it's like, how can I make every last dollar possible, which they've now even gone over and bent over to say, well, maybe we can make some money on these collectibles. Now, I like to think the Yankee Steiner deal the Red Sox Steiner, Cubs Steiner, Dodgers Steiner, those deals that I started definitely helped, which I knew it would make the business, one thing, bigger, but also more respectable. 
it was a way to connect with a lot more fans because if the team said it was a good idea, now it just opened a lot of fans' ideas to it. Plus, they put those collectibles a lot. In a lot of cases, one of my big things was getting it in the ballpark. So the view now is it's a line item still for a lot of teams, which is upsetting. They don't really respect the fact that by selling those collectibles, it's telling people that it's that this stuff's worth investing in. Coming to the ballpark is more than just an experience. It's an experience worth investing in. But there are a lot of teams that still don't get it, and they're still not really taking it that seriously. But I will say, now having looked at it, I guess that's 15 years now. Wow, it's almost 20 years since I did Yankee Steiner, Notre Dame Steiner. And, you know, I, I mean, there are a lot of people starting to take that a lot more seriously. It just, I, I think it should be, I don't know why every team wouldn't. But I think that there's... A lot of a lot more at stake with these teams. The valuation is going up higher, and the leagues trying to expand. And you got to go get every dollar. And now we're going through that phase where they look at you know for a lot of the teams they look at the memorabilia as a money grab instead of like an investment that they need to make with their fans to get their fans more closer to the game. And the teams that do get it, just what happens, I think the teams that do get it, a lot of them are the ones that are worth a lot more and a lot more valuable. Well, I I think you you definitely deserve a lot of credit for those deals you've done in the past, like the Yankees and Red Sox to legitimize and grow oh, thank you. collectibles. Of course, collectibles. And memorabilia. Yeah. Hey, of course, of course. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I, I, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Thank you. You, of course, identified opportunities that very few people could see at the time, or at least weren't pursuing. And now like kind of bringing it to today, the founding of collectible exchange, someone who, understands the customer, whether we're talking about the customer, meaning someone that's actually buying collectibles or someone who's at the team, the front office or the athlete themselves, like signing, whatever it is. What was the opportunity that you saw in recent years that made you want to start Collectible Exchange? And then let's dive into what is Collectible Exchange for someone who doesn't know what it is. Well, first of all, what I love about Collectible Exchange and Starstock for that matter is that it's an easy entry point for the young ones. You know, I'm always thinking about the young ones now, some of those young ones are in, you know, 50, 60-year-old people's bodies, but young, young mindset is, you know, what collecting is all about and everything else. So, so just, you know, just to kind of, you know, get an idea And that collectible exchange starts with, you know, I go home one night, my wife's like, what are we doing with all this stuff? You mean if I die, what should you do? I'm like, well, first of all, don't go in this room because you're not going to understand all the stuff I have. And one of the things about guys is that they're closet collectors. Yeah. Like, Women are upfront about everything. They they collect something. They want, they'll tell the world what they got, how they got it, how valuable it is, and they love what they got. Guys buy stuff. They fall in love. They throw out of love, and also they don't always tell people. So you know, you got some dirty jersey underneath the bed. It's worth about twenty five grand. It's a it's a game used jersey for some big time player, and the wife looks at it it's like, let me put this in the laundry or throw it out. So you know, I thought I, I'm developing a website where people can themselves sell stuff buy and sell. I also think you're falling out of love with things. And if you think about it, if you bought something 15 years ago, you may have been loving Ken Griffey Jr. And now maybe you're not loving him as much, but some young kid may want him. So we're seeing a, in this new collectible exchange, a ton of stuff from collectors from 20, 30, 40 years ago now come to surface. So it's a great time to buy the Ali's, Mantles, some of the old guys. But you know, also the young guys are pretty popping too. And, and Collectible exchange just goes as the market goes. And you know, Starstock, same thing. I think there's a lot of people that have trading card collections that don't know what to do with it. Grade it, hold it, fold it, save it, throw it out. What 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 are these things worth? The cards were left for me. I have no idea. You know, people always have a habit of saving their trading cards. But 
I don't think they had a, 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 a view of what they were going to do down the long run. So Startstock is a site that really helps you. And if you do know what you're doing, you can go and get on there and buy, sell all day. What's great about it is we have a vault. So if you don't, if you have a lot of cards, Tony, which people out there that have card collection, they know what I'm talking about. At least if you don't want to be buying and selling and shipping all day, you can put them in our vault and it's safe, secure, and then you can buy and sell out of our vault, kind of like you would do with a stock portfolio if you were actually buying and trading stocks. Like nobody's sitting there with a, a stack of stock certificates buying and selling, right? You know, you make those trades online and somebody moves those stocks around. And that's the same thing like with uh, Star Stock. Well, Let's say I'm a collector or investor or someone that just has like a lot of cards. And right now my options are, let's say I want to go to eBay or many of these other marketplaces like Alt or PWCC, Golden. How would you compare the offering of Collectible Exchange versus some of these other ones? Is it, is it like complementary? Is it an alternative? Is it a different kind of person? Is it similar? I think it's a solid alternative. I mean, um, but I think it's going to give you more, more variables. Uh, not yet. I mean, I just took it over only, only two months ago, but we'll be partnering up with eBay. So your, your cards will not only be on Starstock, but eBay as well. But we'll be able to showcase them in my eBay live shows, in our eBay mail, in our, in our eBay, in our, in our collectible exchange, eBay mailings. We're going to be doing VIP mailings. So we'll be able to showcase your product. Whereas, you know, you get stuck in those bigger marketplaces. God knows who's looking at it, who gets to look at it. If you have a cool collection, we'll be able to actually help you auction it off or be able to put you yourself on my, on my show. I'll be going and doing regular eBay Lives in conjunction with Collectible Exchange regularly, multiple times a week. And, you know, I had a pretty good following before I got involved with this eBay relationship. So, you know, there's a lot of people watching and a lot of people will usually take my guidance of what I think are good ideas to buy, what things to sell, what things are worth. So I'm hoping that that credibility, because people I think trust me, will, will, will use me when we have this show to answer questions, help them, guide them along. And if they have collections, help them sell it. I think I have a distinct advantage. You know, I think people that are in this business know me. I've been very visible, I've been very hands-on, and I've been in 100% authentic and honest. It's like where you see some of these other sites, you know, eh, not every, you know there, there's some good ones out there. I'm not going to say that we're the only good one. There are some good ones out there. And my objective is to highlight those good ones, not only mine, but I want to highlight the good ones and I'm going to come down on some of the bad ones. And that's what you're going to see on my show. So I don't care. I, I, all I care about is the customer. I care about the fans and giving them the truth and giving them the best direction. And I'll let, I'll let the chips fall as they may. Well, and I think that's what there is demand for nowadays. You know, like people are looking for authenticity and trust. That's been, that's an issue uh, probably historically, but definitely an issue now. People feeling like, I don't know whether they're getting scammed or whether they're getting ripped off or whether it's hard for them to trust. We even, even a place like eBay, that's why they, they, they promote so much like the authenticity guarantee. Is that level of trust and authenticity and credibility something that it seems more like a, uh, a challenge now than like 20, 30 years ago? Were people still worried about that kind of stuff, let's say 30 years ago? You know, it's a good question and it's a good point. I, I think what really upset me, you hit a nerve here, by the way, and that is, you know, when I got in the business with so many fake things, now it's more manipulative. So it's a different kind of fake. Like a friend of mine that runs banks says, you know, a bank gets robbed in my bank. He worked for Chase at the time. He goes, there's a bank getting robbed every day. 
I said, I've never seen, I've never gone by a bank and robbed no guys with guns. And he goes, no, they're, they're, they're robbing my bank uh, for, you know, online. They're cracking the codes. They get into people's accounts. Every day a bank's getting robbed. Maybe sometimes two a day. Oh, wow. And I say the same thing now in the collectible business where, yeah, there's not as much forgery. I think the FBI jumping in and, and, and you know, people going to jail. But then you have people manipulating things and scamming. And what really got a nerve, one of the reasons why I bought Starstock to be able to put my put a little difference into it is during the virus, you know, people were scheming and scamming and getting people to buy cards at way, way overpriced. And there's a lot of ways to manipulate the market if you know what you're doing versus people that don't. And I felt like there was a whole bunch of new people coming into the business. And, and some of the people that were in business took advantage. And, and that's exactly what I want to accomplish is like, wait a minute. A Mia Ham rookie card, I'm going to pick out this one, for example. A Mia Ham rookie card is not $31,000. Not today, not yesterday, not ever. So, and it really upset me how that got manipulated and that it made, actually made news. It was like, Mia Ham's rookie card sold for $31,000. I'm like, no, it didn't. But somebody schemed and scammed and figured out a way to do that. And then trying to set the market, because he had a bunch of Mia Ham rookies, so now if you picked up the card for ten or fifteen thousand, you thought you were getting a steal. That'd be common sense, right? The car was never worth thirty-one thousand, nor is it even worth ten or fifteen. But you can see how these markets get created. I'm just using one example of many. And what's gonna happen with my new platform is not that. That's what's not gonna happen. Like, and I'm gonna start spotting out these situations where some of these other companies are doing things to ruin the hobby or, or ruin the business, whichever way you want to look at it, you get my point. It, it's not going to happen. But also I, my attention also in partnering up with eBay is, is to clean up that site a little bit too. I think generally eBay is pretty good and I love their guarantee. So they're tightening up, but I can help them you know, with my knowledge going on of a whole bunch of, and looking at a whole bunch of vendors with some people, not a lot of them, nowhere near as many as used to be need to be kicked off. There's a bunch of stuff just needs to be removed. And I, I'm happy to remove them out of the room. I'm, I'm, I'm like that big security bouncer. I'm ready to take people out because there's no room for them because the business is on a good, in a good place. If you're not doing good, I always tell people, I never worry about my competitors unless they're doing wrong. If you're doing wrong, then you're, 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 you don't want to be near me. So I'm going to wipe you out. But if you're doing well, it's just you're just beating me, or you just you're just competing with me. Hey, because it's good for the business. If I'm going to be a, if I'm going to be irrelevant in the business, as the business grows, whether it's by me or someone else, I'm happy. But the problem is there's still some people hanging on, not doing the right thing, and those people got to be removed. And it's not, it's, the good news is not as bad as it used to be. Well, I, I think that's something everybody will will appreciate hearing, and I think it's good to hear that. That is one of your goals explicitly as well. Well, obviously, a big part of this is is you working with Starsock, acquiring the company. Scott has been on this podcast before, and that's how we got connected. Can you maybe take, tell me about how, how did you discover Starstock? How did you get in touch with them? And then also, like, is it merging with Collectible Exchange? Are you keeping the Starstock brand, or is it going to be the Collectible Exchange brand? Love to just know how this like all came together. Well, first of all, you know Scott's a Syracuse guy, and I play basketball with Scott. I know Scott when, when we both talked about maybe us starting collectible exchange together. I was trying to get him to help me do this. And then he had met Nigel and he went and did his own thing. And I kept always saying to him, like, we should just do that. You got the cards. I got the collectibles. Do this together. And then at some point I, I met Nigel and, and you know, I always kept in touch with Scott 
I knew his dad well. Also, he helped me uh, with a whole bunch of different improving relationships with Syracuse and a long story short. So, you know, I, I think they kind of ran its course. I, I'm not sure exactly what happened with them, but like a lot of businesses, you know, sometimes the margins aren't right. Sometimes you're not listening to your customers close enough. It, it's a combination of things why businesses don't work. But I like the platform. I really like the website. I love the interaction with customers. I like a lot of Scott's ideas. And I thought it was worth folding them in. Ultimately, Starstock's going to be folded in to Collectible Exchange. But my intention right now, as I see, is to keep the name, but obviously to get it grown and obviously integrate it into Collectible Exchange so the two work really hand-in-hand and are close together. Because most of my collectible customers are into cards. Most of the Starstock card customers are always into little collectibles. And one of my big goals with the site is, and this is really a little more of a Scott idea, but it's... Throughout my course, I was always a guy that loved getting his trading card signed. Always. And this was so, so negatively reactive. I'm an autograph guy. Yeah. So, you know, for years, I'm collecting cards and getting them autographed. I mean, thousands of them. Obviously, I have issues like everyone else. You know what I mean? I'm, I love cards. I love getting them signed. But during the virus, everybody started saying they want to get their cards signed. So I look like a genius. But one of the things I want to do now that people are in agreement with me about getting cards signed, because Back then, I was just doing it because it was fun. I wanted it. Not that I knew anything because I didn't. But now, one of my big things is that I'm going to give a lot of opportunities on Starstock for people to get their cards signed. We're going to do a lot of streaming with cards getting signed and also really good deals to get their cards signed. One of the things I noticed with a couple of my competitors is that they don't allow people to bring their cards to the show to get them signed because they want you to go buy the sets and the packs. I'm going the opposite direction. I'm going to be send your cards in. We're going to get them signed. And I'm going to do a whole bunch of experiential things where I have athletes where they're going to go to locations and just sign cards. And I think there's a lot of people out there that want to get their cards signed. I'm listening to the customers. That's one of the things that they want. Hopefully, I'm going to get a lot of athletes on the air talking about their card collections and their connection to cards. And hopefully, I can keep listening to some of the customers that have ideas about Starstock and what they need. And I can you know, I can go put those in play. I'm not an expert on trading cards. So there's a little bit of a me figuring it out thing. I don't necessarily have all the answers of what to do with Starstock yet, but I'm getting a lot of feedback on, on social. I'm taking it all in and I'm still kind of, I'm still a little bit of a rookie on them. So I'm not stuck in my ways about how I view trading cards. I love hearing from the younger people because they kill me. They're, they, they're very hard on me. Starstock, ship me this, ship me that. I'm like, Thank you. Well, give me more details. Tell me. I've gotten some really good feedback and good ideas, even though it's been, you know, sometimes people don't always, when you email and text, it's not always as cushy, cozy as you'd like it to be. But hey, I love the passion. Love, love the passion. Well, hey, we're at the beginning of 2024, and I'm sure you're figuring out, if you haven't already, like your priorities for the year. What should people expect, let's say this time next year, about what Collectible Exchange Starstock is it has built. Is there anything new coming up? Are there things people should be aware of? Is it just kind of a gradual iteration? Are things you can't share? First of all, you got the wrong guy. If you want to talk gradual or whatever, that's just not me. I love it. I'm not made that way. I love it. So there's nothing gradual. I, I don't know about that word, but I, I don't even know if that's in my vocabulary. And I definitely don't even know if I could spell it. But I mean, listen, my first goal always in, in, in any year I've been in this business is how do I get fans closer to the game? That's my number one game. Like, So, you know, bringing experiential back and getting more players, Q&As, card breaks with players, 
car breaks with athletes. Yeah. Car yeah. breaks out in the community somehow, breaking cards is, is a definite priority. I think you're going to see me a lot more online with my new show on eBay. So it's a priority and really getting experts, getting people that know the business and getting their view. It's one thing for me to talk and I have a certain amount of knowledge, but I'm going to go into the hobby and I'm going to find young ones, old ones, new ones, and get people's feeling about the hobby and share that experience. I think a lot of people are sitting at home, especially people that have a lot of money that have invested in some stuff. Like you always feel a little weird about asking questions, but you're going to be able to do that on my program. You're going to be able to ask the stupid question. Ask the question that's been bothering you, like, you know, why is Jorge Posada's autograph more than Yogi Berra? Yogi won 10 World Series and Jorge only won five. You know, whatever it is, you know, should we get this car grade? Why, what's the story with this new set of cards? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a lot of education on my platform and a lot of what's it worth. People have a lot of things. They want to know what it's worth, and they need to get an honest answer, not an answer that lowballs you and enables me to make a lot of money, but an honest answer. Here's what it's worth. You want to sell this right now? It's worth this. Maybe hold it. It'll be worth a little bit more. Maybe do this and this to the card. Could be worth more. Like those kinds of conversations, you're going to see a lot of me doing this year with, I mean, there's a lot of really cool people in the hobby now, particularly in the card industry, but all over that have a lot of, that have spun this thing into a lot of different directions. I'm going to learn from them. I'm going to bring them on the platform and hopefully get a lot more interaction where people can actually have a place where they can call home, so to speak. And that's what I'm hoping my channel with eBay will give me. I mean, eBay, you got to remember, I mean, it's the fourth largest website on the planet. It's not like, you know, it's like small little. So, you know, it's, I'm extremely grateful and humble to even be on there and to have this opportunity. And if I'm going to do it, I mean, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to dig down deep and do it right. Well, if we look to 2024 and just maybe just even beyond that, one of the things, you know, I think Michael Rubin from Fanatics has said that one of his goals is like like 10x the hobby. Uh, if you think about growth beyond just collectible exchange, but just in general, do you think that there'll be more fans and customers in general? Do you think it's more about growth outside the U.S.? Do you think it's people spending more money on the hobby? Where, where do you think, is it certain sports that aren't really monetizing this or, or having enough collectibles? Where do you think growth comes from? You know, Tony, I'm glad you brought this up. This, this, this is the kind of shenanigan thing that drives me crazy. Oh, we're going to 10X it. Well, how are we going to grow it? It's going to be huge. Like, how about we figure out a way to do better quality products? How do we figure out how to serve fans and fanatical fans better? And then let the growth take care of itself. I'm not sitting here with a gun to my head that I got to 10X anything. What I need to do is come up with 10 times better ideas and 10 times more service and solving more problems than I had last year. So that people are more comfortable with the business and people are more excited about the business. So when you start 10Xing, like at what cost? Who's getting in? Who's getting pushed out? You know, to me, what I'm concerned with is, is particularly about the people getting pushed out as we're getting people pushed in. Like things getting really expensive. How do we get lower price autograph cards in the game? How do we get things a little more affordable? I'm going to start showing up at a lot more card shows with a bunch of different athletes and hopefully do them at a little more affordable prices uh, from time to time. You know, you know, there's listen, growth is always important. 10X, I mean, we just went through a huge growth spurt and there's a lot of maturing and a lot of things that have to happen to, to kind of get that leveled up, frankly. 
And I would do that. I would be more concerned with getting people a lot more educated on solid ground than I would be taking them further into the ocean, uh, which I'm really nervous, man. Like, I, I just feel like we made a mistake with the grading, the, the overpricing of the grading, too many cards getting printed, too much hype about one-on-ones of, of, of these unbelievable cards, but meanwhile, there's 20 other one-on-ones. And the, like, that kind of stuff, it's got to stop. You know, you know, this this helmet's unbelievable. It's one of one. But meanwhile, the guy signed 2,000 helmets. Like, you know, people are a little naive, but up to a point. And then they start catching on. And then the hobby starts backtracking as opposed to growing. I'd be more concerned about how we're going to keep people in the game. And if you want to keep people in the game, they're buying stuff at a lot of money that expects those prices to hold up. And they expect those prices to grow. So sometimes in order to grow, you need to actually pull back and not do everything you possibly can with a particular player, not have them sign everything you possibly can and keep things limited, keep things tight. And I think what's happening in the trading card thing is it's got, I don't know, it's just way too many cards. I, I can't even tell. I'm trying to get my arms around it with what's hot, what's not, like how many sets. I mean, it just seems like really almost too much in my opinion. I, I don't say that as a fact, but I say it more as a feeling, but I, I got a pretty strong feeling like there's too much. We need to kind of tighten it up a little bit, but I don't control that. But I'm getting a feel even from Starstock. People are sitting with way too many commons, too many cards they think are worth a lot more than what they are, and it's bothersome. And I think the grading companies need to come to their senses because, I mean, don't get me started. I don't even understand why you have to get a card graded. I mean, it's ridiculous. If you bought a Mercedes, you think you had to go get that car and get it graded? Oh, I got a I got a Mercedes the other day for one hundred and ten thousand dollars, and it was an eight. It wasn't perfect. Like I'm buying these cards for a hundred dollars for a pack, and I first got to get them graded. Why can't we figure out how to get every one of these cards perfect? It's insane. And then the amount you're charging me to grade something that takes a matter of seconds, which is extremely opinionated. I mean, I got a problem with that. Like I, I think we got to come to some some kind of rational, fair compromise on this grading thing i mean and then for people that are getting way too many perfect tens that are you know i, I think golden's conflicted I, I do i mean how could golden be partners with psa and get all these mint tens some of this sound right i mean and everybody's talking about it but nobody really wants to know like, what's going on here that, that that shouldn't be that's that's to me that's a conflict and then all of a sudden all these mint tens are coming his way How's that possible? Well, you feel me? Yeah, this is where I want to tap into your background here, right? Because if if I understand the history correctly, you know, grading these grading companies aren't like a hundred years old, right? I thought they started taking off in the '90s, post junk wax era. So where did that grading, the demand for grading, come from? Did it come from the fact that people felt burnt about junk wax, so they said, "Hey, we got to be more worried about quality of cards." So that's when grading came in. And do you think there's an, a need for grading? Forever, because also you have you have new grading companies, right? Like they're grading startups. Of course, PSA is still going to be, at least, you know, potentially still be like kind of like leading the pack. But like, take me back to what what how come grading didn't matter in 1988, for example, or why did it matter less? I think the grading thing started to happen because what happened is you had all these old cards, and you just couldn't tell if they were, uh, uh, you know, they were just old, and some of them were beat up, and you can't say a Mickey Mantle card. That was kind of beat up the same, the same thing that's worked when the cards are in really good shape. So we needed somebody to come and mediate it. And, and that's what happens. Like, well, all these people started coming forward, all these old cards. Here we are in the 90s. You're showing up with these cards in the 50s, 60s. And like, 
you can't say they're all equal. Not all cards are equal. So now all of a sudden you get kind of caught up in 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 that aspect of which I kind of get. I just don't understand going forward why cards can't be created pretty perfectly and why there's such a big expense to it. So the cards are expensive and then the grading is expensive. And the cards, the card companies should be more accountable in in producing much more perfect cards. And it's just, it's the old story about the pot roast, you know, the lady, you know, the ladies in the kitchen and 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 you know, and she cuts off the ends of the pot roast, and, and so her son comes in and says, my mom, like, why do you cut the ends off to the pot roast? She says, well, this is what my mother did. And she goes, you know, ask grandma. And it goes to grandma, why do you cut the ends of the pot roast? Says, well, that's what my grandmother did. And before you know, you're talking to the great-great-grandmother. She's like, why do you cut the ends off to the pot roast? She says, well, because it didn't fit in the pan. So we had to cut the, I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what everybody just kept doing. So it's like, why do you grade these cards? That's what we, we do it for 40 years. But it makes no freaking sense. It doesn't. But and and we should hold the card companies accountable to producing better quality cards. And 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 and, and we shouldn't have to go spend a ton more money to get them graded. It's a nice little scheme and scam, but it doesn't make sense to me. And that's one of the reasons why at Starstock, I've said this, but I'll say it to you first. That's one of the reasons why we're going to go back and take and start taking ungraded cards and then going back to the ABC level value, which should matter. To make it more fun and make and make it more fairer for people that just want to buy and trade cards and have fun with it. Well, well, I mean, there are all these different factors that are pushing up the price of a card. Like you mentioned, that Mia Ham hypothetical, like a Mia Ham card, maybe will never be worth thirty thousand. But I wasn't hypothetical, Tony. I wasn't hypothetical. I was real. The case study, the Mia Ham case study. There now. So, so if if Mia Ham cards are overpriced at thirty k, maybe now it's come down to like. I don't know, like a lower price than that. Do we get to a point where... Like a thousand? Yeah, right. But have we already hit this sort of kind of natural ceiling where a lot of the cards that sold in like the most, the top of the hype cycle will never be at that sort of price again unless the market's being kind of boosted or manipulated or or overhyped? I would not. No, I would say that. I would say that there's a bunch of cards that are the holy grail and that are incredibly cool and you can't go back and print them again. You know, you're not, you know, could ever mess around with it, that the mantle, the the Jordan rookie, you know, all those kind of cards. Some of those older rookies, you know, some of the holy grails are the holy grails, and and we built it up to be that. Just like it's ridiculous, but it's true. But you buy a '57 Thunderbird. I, I mean, I don't know why that cost like 200 grand when probably cost their owner like 5,000. If you know, back back in '57. But you know, we we've set those markets up, those trends. I respect that. I mean. Those cards are 50 years old or, you know, that kind of thing. I get it. I think what's confusing is some of these current day cards that have been sold over the last couple of years. If you're alluding to that, that's going to be a slippery slope. And a lot of people are going to be very upset when they actually realize that portfolio that they thought was X and they were going to send their kids to college on. The only thing they're going to be doing is get some lunch money on it. Yeah, I've already lived through a phase of this in the early 90s. We all thought we were like, oh, my God, these cards are worth a lot. And we all went and bought ridiculous amounts of cards and you know that's firewood now like almost all of it anybody knows who's listening who's a trading card fan knows that all these older people come up and they got all these cards from the late 80s early 90s and i mean if you're lucky enough maybe you got a jeter rookie in there or, or this or that but there ain't much there but a lot got bought and this is the same thing that happened during those four or five years around the virus where people went crazy they bought way too many cards and there's just a lot of firewood there a lot of, a lot of meaningless cards and It'll be a little bit of a setback. It's going to take a couple of years for people to really come to grips with the fact that they bought a card for $5,000 and it's worth 500 
and I'm, I'm I'm not exaggerating, but we'll see. Well, is is there something we? I know, I, I Brandon, I I kind of want to book you in for another five hour obsession because I'd love to talk about so many other things. But know we don't have all the time in the world. So is there is there a topic that we haven't talked about that you think is important that you want to like bring up when it comes to your view on cards and collectibles? Here is just in my last comment, my last view, and that is, if you have a view, hit me with it. You know, I love hearing it. It's a difficult time right now. There's a transition right now going on with trading cards, you know, as far as control with Fanatics taking over tops, you know, it, you know, Panini, you know, like all of a sudden we have the tables are definitely turning. And it's a time when as a collector, you need to communicate your, your happiness and unhappiness appropriately. I'm interested in hearing your feedback, but, you know, generally speaking, I'm a work in progress. I'm excited about the year because. I'm going to give people an opportunity to voice their opinions and trade better, faster, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And I tell you, just to go back to one thing we talked about, and that was the national, like for all the young ones out there that are in this business, you know, keep going, keep grinding, but also be smart, be careful. Rome was not built in a day. They were working on it every day, but it wasn't built in a day. Like for the young ones out there, you know, don't be overly, overly aggressive here because there's some stuff happening that may be, a little bit past your pay grade that you may not be aware of. And I don't want you to be stuck when the music stops without a chair because it's really important that we keep you in the business, flourishing, making money, having fun. And I don't want to see you get, you know, side, you know, sideswiped. Well, Brandon, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to close off with two last questions here for you. The first being, where can people connect with you, find you on social media, Collectibles Exchange? And then two, any, I doubt what you just said was actually a good one, but any last messages to leave with the audience as well? Keep in touch, you know. I mean, I'm a big LinkedIn guy. I highly recommend it for you entrepreneurs out there. Unfortunately, I'm over the limit, so follow me. You know, my Facebook page is a fan page. You got to like it. I put a lot of content on there on all levels. So it's it's a site that you'll probably get a lot out of if you go on my Instagram. or Now, I'm on all those sites. I'm responding to everything because I enjoy it. Not you know, I, It's not because I got to do it because I actually get to do it. I, I get to talk to fans. It's a little easier than me staying outside my store, which I did for years, talking to fans. Now I can talk to them via the live or to, you know, on the social. So, you know, don't hesitate to message me or connect with me. LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram is easy. And, uh, you know, BrandonSteiner.com has all the information about me if you're interested in, in uh, uh, just a resume of the personal stuff that I'm doing. But I appreciate being on the show. Everybody out there, thank you for the support. I wouldn't be here without you. So it's been a lot of years I've been able to do this so-called job that I do, but without the, you know, I'm just so, so grateful that you never know, like you wake up, is are these people still going to buy what I'm thinking? Are they still buying it? What I'm, what I'm doing? That's, that's a lot to be grateful for. I mean, that, you know, 35, 37 years in now. So feeling good. Still got some gas left in the tank. So I may have enough gas in the tank to come back on your program in a few <laughs> months and we'll recap and see how I'm doing. Yeah. You'll, you'll grade me. You'll, you'll tell me if I'm, if I'm on the right track. Brandon, thank you so much. Appreciate you taking the time and I look forward to the next time. All right, Tony, have a great day. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to the New Street X podcast. You can learn more about the guest in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Please make sure to like, follow, subscribe across YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and more. Thank you so much. See you next time.